Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, and I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Islander, Delinda McCann. Hello, Delinda, and thank you for joining me today. Hi, March. So let's see here. Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Ashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. every Saturday and Sunday on 101.9 FM KVSH, and is available online 24-7 at voiceofvashon.org. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I guess for talking about my writing, the most important thing to know is I have a background in social psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked with at-risk kids. And when you say at-risk, that's a really, really polite way of saying that you've worked with the worst of what humanity does to children. Mm Mm-hmm. Of course, that burns you out, uh, and I was about ready to retire anyway, so that was when I started writing mm-hmm. and have used my experience with working with children and the adults around them to mm-hmm. to work on my books. And for how many, let's see, you went to college first, like got a degree, decided to yeah. have kids, and dove into working with at-risk youth? Is that sort of the order it went through? Yeah. And so um, how long were you engaged in, like, the academia world before you plunged into it on a familial level? Um, Well, I got my bachelor's degree and um, got out of school and got drafted into working with migrant workers' children. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were at risk mostly because they didn't speak English. Mm Mm-hmm. So I taught English as a second language, and um, when that project ended, I then went back for my master's. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't really quite finished with my master's when I got into another project working with teens. Mm -hmm. Most of that turned out to be a grief support group. Most of them had lost a sibling or a parent. Oh, wow. That is intense work. So this is, what's the title for this area of work? Social psychology or? That's what my professors told me to call myself as a social psychologist, a social scientist. um, Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, you know, I have enough credits in both sociology and psychology Mm -hmm. to get a degree in either one. And it was so when you were going to college, roughly what what decade are we talking about? 60s, 70s? Oh, I was uh, bachelor's 64 to 68. Master's was 74 to 76. Okay, got it. Now, in both of those decades, um, which schools were you going to? I went to Washington State University and Portland State University. Washington State University. That's on the east side of the state, yeah. right? Okay. And um, what was it like at that point for people who were going to college? Was it something that um, was subsidized well by the government, or was it extremely expensive? Were people going into debt? You know, how does it relate your college experience to what people are facing today? Um, I don't think it relates. My first tuition check that I wrote was for $106. We could work for three months in the summer and pretty much pay our tuition, fees, books, room and board mm-hmm. for nine months of school. You right. know, I had some scholarships, but, you know, not a lot. Right. In the state of Washington, we had timber money. 
that mm-hmm. paid for a lot of our university schooling. And right. um, they cut down the trees. Right. And so and we lost a lot of our timber funding. Sure, over time. Of course, trees don't grow as fast yeah. as we can cut them down. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I always, whenever I talk with people in their... Um, uh, they went to school in the 60s or 70s. You know, I like to check in a little bit on, on what their impressions were. I think that was during, it was um, during that same time that Bernie Sanders was going to college for free in, what was it, New York City, I think, yeah. or something like that. My mother and father were attending um, UCSB, which is this gorgeous, incredible campus in Santa Barbara, near Santa mm-hmm. Barbara, and, you know, virtually free you know, subsidized housing. They're married with a child, so it's married student housing and stuff. And just things are really different now. So I like to touch yeah. in on that a bit. They're very different, you know. I was, um, I had two older brothers in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was disabled. My mother worked in a library. And together they had three kids in college. Right. And it was doable because, mm-hmm. you know, we had summer jobs. Um, and we had some student loans. Student loans were like 3% interest when we got out of school. And you could put your money in a savings account and get five and a half. And we really didn't like being in debt and wanted to pay those darn loans off. But Mm -hmm. it was expensive to pay them off because you could make more with interest. But I think it took us five years Mm -hmm. to pay off all our student loans. And that was mostly because we wanted to be saving money at 5.5% instead of paying off loans that were 3%. Right. Yeah, of course. It's amazing because I've known Jalinda now for, I think, two and a half years. And um, I am really looking forward to discussing some of these books. And, in fact, if you ever go to the farmer's market, there's the Locavore Lit, right? Yes. the name of it. Right. Okay, so we have... Delinda and her daughter, Melissa McCann, tend to be the stalwart members who are almost always there every Saturday at market with local Vorlit, and they very kindly not only share their own written works, but they offer space for anyone who's on the island to bring in their books. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? We love to have other authors come and hang out with us. Um, Marilyn Cochran quite often brings her... Uh, books written by her dachshunds, and she's got some wonderful adventure stories about things she's done with those dachshunds. Yes. We like to have featured authors, and quite often somebody will come by and do a signing, hang out for three or four hours. They don't have to stay the full time. Mm -hmm. It's nice if they do. The more authors we have there, the better. Right. And just about, oh, every other week, somebody else who is has a book almost ready to publish or it's just published something, comes by and says, how do I get my books on this table? Mm-hmm. And we say, well, you bring in your books and you put them down on the table. Right. And uh, they kind of look at us like we have two heads. and, and But that's what you do. You yeah. bring in your books and you put them down on the table. So and what's your top seller? My top seller has got to be Matik Surrat, End of Empire. All right, so you have a whole, a whole overarching theme and concept to this series, and this definitely relates back to some of your life experiences. Why don't you summarize, sort of, in general, what you're hoping to inspire in your readers with this storyline? Um, this came out of 
that internet experience where I was working with people mm-hmm. from primarily English-speaking countries. I, I talked to people in India, Uganda, uh, South Africa, Kenya, Zimbabwe, just learning their culture, not so much what they eat or but how they interact doing business. And I was so struck that they would speak to me, but not to somebody with a doctorate mm-hmm. because they felt they weren't good enough. Right. That that struck me a great deal. So I mulled that over for quite some time. And the other thing that came out of this was I worked quite a bit with the Minister of Health in South Africa. Mm-hmm. At the end of his term, Nelson Mandela wrote me a very nice letter thanking me for my work with fetal alcohol syndrome and for my support of his Minister of Health. I didn't think much about the letter. I mean, mm. Nelson Mandela yeah. wrote me a letter, and I basically said, oh, isn't that sweet? I read it to my husband and blew it off. That's I pretty awesome, it. though. So they must really. So, so how does that tie in with End of Empire? Well, let's let's start down you here start with Lies. Lies. Sure, yeah, go for it. because uh, well, actually, it's in in Power and Circumstance mm-hmm. that I bring up the idea that kind of an ordinary woman mm-hmm. through the power of the internet can actually meet somebody with the stature of Nelson Mandela. And the little, little, very good point. The little things that we do to help ourselves or our friends or out of desperation or because it's the right thing to do mm-hmm. really can land us in some rather outlandish and unexpected places. Sure, exactly. Uh, and so um, now with lies that bind, so I started where this woman actually meets the president mm-hmm. that she has had this email contact with. At this point, I should say, I have never, ever, ever had an affair with a foreign head of state. (laughs) That part of the book is totally fiction. Well, you didn't say it was uh, an autobiography, so clearly it's a story. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when I start talking about it, well, it is is kind of based on the fact that, yes, an ordinary woman can come to the attention of somebody very prominent and important, right? Based a lot on this woman going to this country and working with their orphanages. Okay. And in working with fetal alcohol syndrome and advising right. foreign uh, departments of health uh, right. about fetal alcohol syndrome, this was at the time of the AIDS epidemic. Many, many of these mm. kids were orphaned. Mm-hmm. And so I I was also advising the structure of orphanages and following a model of defining the, the children in the orphanages as being part of a family mm-hmm. and trying to keep friendship groups together. Wow. And so that's in here is part of what I learned about orphans and right. orphanages and uh, so you so basically we've got a four book series here which is very interesting lies that bind was written first and then you went back and you took the main character that's in lies that bind and you went back and you wrote end of empire birth of a nation 
power and circumstance, and those three actually tell the backstory in a way of that character. Yes. So right now you said, and so lovely people out there who are listening, all of you who um, have written a book and then later said, oh, gosh, golly, you know what? I wish I had done something a little different. Um you right now are in the process of revising Lies That Bind because you feel like you now understand the character better and you want to uh, enrich the story? Yeah. Yeah, it, I, it it needs to tie back to the others. And mm-hmm. some of the people that I just mentioned vaguely in Lies That Bind, I know all about them now and why they were coming to the compound, to the president's office. Right, right. Um, and you said you're going to break it into – it is it is quite a – What's the word it's for it? Tome. Eight yeah, it's eight, it's eight hundred. It weighs two and a half pounds. Yeah, so, it's yes. huge. It's sort of like um, it's like the stand, only much larger in its height than width. Yeah, right. So um, so you're breaking that down into three books. Yeah. So it's going to be a trilogy. Yes, that's brilliant. All right, folks. If you have ever wanted to write a trilogy, Delinda here is saying you can probably also do it. But I would imagine with lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of time and effort. How long have you worked on these books? I start. Well, I started in 2010. And wow, that's I not had, that much time. I All had, of those? <laughs> well, I had cancer uh, at the time. Okay. And I kind of battled cancer from 2009 through 2013. And I would assume you just sort of dropped a lot of other stuff off your plate. A lot of stuff, just yep. yeah, and I mostly I you know sat and wrote. Yeah, you know I just I just moved out of my life and into somebody else's life because my life sucked, mm. and uh, these other people's my imaginary characters people's lives didn't. Stuck in the same way. Yeah. 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 They had hope. They they were healthy. They could, yeah, they could go ride horses or whatever. Right. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's so funny how often people I interview who have written the inciting incident in their life that causes them to suddenly start writing is oftentimes um, actually an illness or an injury or something that just plunks a bunch of stuff off your plate, tosses it off, and you're like, oh, I got all this extra space here, and I can't move around very much or whatever, so what am I going to do? Bam. Yeah. Do you write on a computer or in notebooks? I use my computer. Yeah. Uh, I, I started using my computer with Lies That Bind. I had written short stories before. I used those in a notebook. Um, I guess I did do some professional writing, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Uh, yeah, social psychology stuff and de- birth defects. And, yeah. So uh, one of the things that we've talked about, and uh, okay, so we there's a there's a writers group on the yeah. island, and it meets them um, every Sunday at six p.m. And so you and I met, I think initially through your daughter Melissa. Yes, or did you and I know each other before? Um. Oh, I think we probably met once before when we were talking about. Organizing writers on Yay. the island, yeah. And so, um, so we've had, you know, we've met during the writers groups. We've seen each other at farmers market, but um, we've also had just other casual conversation opportunities sometimes. And you always amaze me, and your daughter. You guys always amaze me with the depth of knowledge, factual, concrete, detailed knowledge you have about all sorts of issues that 
children at risk face, that the rest of us have this blasé impression of something and we really don't know much about the details. I think there's a lot of us have a shallow impression of, oh, fetal alcohol syndrome, bad. You know, <laughs> it's like, that's about as far as it goes. It's like, oh, it's going to somehow mess you up. And then that's like as much as we know. What are a few things that you think are useful for people to know about um, as they go forward in life, either as an encouragement for them to make sure they're very careful about drinking alcohol while pregnant um, or as an encouragement to have more compassion and respect for people who are either suffering from fetal alcohol syndrome or raising a child who is dealing with it. What are some some things that you would put out there that you think would really help people? Mm-hmm. Um, like top the, three. The, the first thing that that we always say is there is no safe amount of alcohol that you could drink for, when you're pregnant. And what what this the alcohol what the ethanol molecule does when it hits the developing brain cells mm-hmm. is it interferes with the brain developing brain cells to migrate to where they need to be. Mm. And so basically, you get it's like they've taken a knife down the center of the brain and it disconnects the right side of the brain from the left side of the brain. Mm-hmm. And we say there's no safe amount Mm -hmm. because any amount you know any every molecule that hits that developing baby's brain will disrupt a cell so so yeah but we can't measure we can't measure minute uh disruption but it would probably depend on what stage of development because different cells are developing at different times so you know I've met women who um, find out they're pregnant, like, actually for me with my second child, I realized I was pregnant um, like three or four weeks into January, and I knew that I had had champagne on New Year's Eve, (laughs) and and I actually didn't, I don't like alcohol personally, it's not a, I'm not um, somehow have a great willpower, I literally can't stand it, it makes me uncomfortable, so I rarely drink. But, you know, I know other women who are like, oh, my gosh, you know, maybe they're heavier drinkers. And they're like, I'm pregnant and I spent the last three weeks at like three different parties or something. And they get really panicky about that. So, I mean, and then you had doctors for decades who were encouraging pregnant women to drink a glass or two of wine every evening. And then you got the Germans. What can I say? You know, Germany, hundreds of years, beer. And in Europe, they drank alcoholic beverages rather than water because the alcoholic beverages were safer for you because it couldn't grow the bacteria and the water was going to basically kill you. So when we say there's no safe amount, at the same time, we're dealing with a planet that's full of humans who the vast majority of them over hundreds of years have come from mothers who were drinking moderate to large amounts of alcohol. Yeah. So Um, how do we find like a, a balanced line between... There's no safe amount, and but you don't need to be neurotic and paranoid and freaked out. Women, you know, I've had that question any any number of times. Mm-hmm. Hello, I, I just found out I'm pregnant. I've been drinking. Mm-hmm. You know, what do I do now? Right. Yeah. And I fall back on, well, there's going to be some 
damaged cells. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, uh, the developing baby develops more cells than they actually need. Mm-hmm. So you've got a little bit of protection there. And you just may need to be aware that as your child grows up, they may need a little more supervision. They may have a little more trouble in math at school. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll probably be able to keep up with their peers with a little bit of help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there, yeah. Depending on how much. Like, this would be a mother yeah. who maybe has been drinking, like, on yeah, a daily basis. Yeah, the ones that would call us were usually in a pretty big panic because they had been drinking quite a bit. Right, right. Uh, and we always say, well, stop now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and whatever comes after, we'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And um, my own foster daughter, uh, that was her story. Is her mother didn't know she was pregnant. Then she didn't get into the doctor. This was back in 76. Mm-hmm. And the doctor at that point then told the mother, you can't drink. So, yes, there is a significant amount of early damage. Mm-hmm. But the parts of the brain that developed later after the mother stopped drinking are fine. You know, mm-hmm. the prefrontal cortex, the front of the brain is is all fine. And that allows her to function quite highly despite the fact that some of the central stuff in the back of the brain is severely damaged. Wow. That is, it is amazing how much we know now about things, how much we can, it's really fascinating. Well, being able, the um, enhanced MRIs were a really big boon to being able to look at the brain Mm -hmm. and measure the thickness of structures and understand how the brain functions. So that's that's been a real godsend to understanding why this particular disability acts as it does. Right. Right, 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 right. Which then brings us around to the question of, you know, how do we help and support these people? So the top two books you have here, Melina. Okay. Let's see. We have something about Maudie and then we have Jeanette. 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 A story of feminine courage. And so these are standalones, right? Yes. All right. Okay. So I'm looking at something about Maudie. And this one is, uh, what are you at? About 200 and... It's a normal size book. Yeah, 260 or so pages. Yeah. Brilliant. Excellent. Tell us a little bit about this. Well, um, Maudie is a United Methodist minister. Um, a Czech... Um, chose that profession for her because one of the things that irritates me in mystery novels is that you have a caterer or a housewife who keeps ending up with encountering dead bodies and mysteries, and that just is not realistic. However, a pastor does, and... You know, pastors are some of those people that see the worst of what goes on and oh. hear about everything that goes on in town. And so being a, a United Methodist, I know a little bit about that church. And so I I wanted a middle-aged professional woman. I prefer to write about women who are mature and women who make good choices, but life is rough Mm -hmm. and so 
That's what we have with Maudie. So there's a, a wee bit of mystery in there. And we well, yeah, have says back here on the back, this, so this is after, there's this really great sort of um, first person um, introduction by her. I like this part. This is really great. Um, you never had a woman pastor, which of course is a piece of this as well, because many churches still won't allow women into the clergy, let alone one who had once been an actress. You barely tolerated my Porsche, my dress, my makeup, and my style of ministering. You didn't trust my son. And couldn't understand why I didn't want you letting yourself into the parsonage when I wasn't home. But somehow he managed. So that's sort of her self-introduction of herself. Yes. So, so folks, this is, you know, Maudie. It might sound <laughs> like an old-fashioned name, but she's not an old-fashioned woman. And then, um, what? So an account of what happened in her first year, it includes a flood, attempted murder of a young woman, a cheating husband, several natural deaths, two divorces, and so much more. Bam. So, yeah, there's a lot going on in here. It's a fun read. It's set in the Kitsap County. So, oh, nice. Sort of local. Yeah. So, Mati encounters some of the things that we encounter. Um, and, you know, she, she drives over the Narrows Bridge when the wind is blowing and it's, it's blowing rain. Uh, and rides ferry boats. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, yeah. Her so, horse, she has converted to electricity. Oh, I, I, I had fun with Maudie. Breaking and you started writing this after you got cancer. Oh, yeah. That one's, um, actually, that one was after I was getting well again. Wow. Oh, my. You are so much fun. Okay, keep going. Yeah. Her um, her Porsche is converted to electricity. electricity. Yay. Yes. Yeah. My daughter describes Maudie's stories as being a Kind of a little bit like the Anne of Green Gables stories in that you have a community mm-hmm. full of interesting characters. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of like Vashon. A community full of interesting characters who care about each other mm-hmm. or not. And mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and she's new. So what I like about this is that she sounds like she's coming into a community that a lot of the people who live there already sort of know each other. They've got the, the gossip going. They've got, oh, the, yeah. you know, they've got all that. But she shows up with fresh new eyes and they have to respond to her as a new person. So you get both the established entrenched community aspect, but then you get the, the new person's role. Oh, yeah. I love it. The new it. person coming into you know, a small community. In attempted murder. So apparently... Oh, interesting. Yeah. See, now we, I want to see, know. With There's that so one, we ways to attempt in, murder. Into some brain damage there, you know. That's Okay. I, I like to have people with disabilities in all right. my books. Well, uh, does the young boy in End of Empire start with disabilities? Um, There's a lot of... Well, Jake does not. Yeah, the main character doesn't. That, but, um, yeah, within a few pages, his sister dies. Yeah. So... Yeah. Uh, but he certainly encounters enough people with all sorts of limits. Absolutely, because he's living in a very challenging world. Yes. yes. Now, is it um, – I read that a while ago because I was in an interview you last year and then life got busy. So is it actually a real-world country or is it just similar to one but it's a make-believe one? What I did when I was making this country up, Yes, mentally, I danced around the world. Yep. Uh, Grabbing customs from here and there. 
um, using a lot of my background in social sciences Mm -hmm. to talk about um, what happens when people are living in an oligarchy, Mm -hmm. which much of the world is. An impoverished oligarchy. Yes. Well. Because we, I think we have, well, I don't know, because, or is he just in a poor neighborhood in the beginning? Um. There, there is a small middle class in his country. Right, right, right. But um, he he comes from a native background, and you know the natives are are more Second looked class. down on yeah, 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 yeah. than the immigrants. You know, mm-hmm. and they do have a social hierarchy in their country, and even the Chinese people that have come there are have a higher status than the natives. It's interesting. I had a real sense, basically, of, you know, India and China sort of combined um, and a little bit of a sense of, of a little bit of a sense of Africa. So um, that was just my, my takeaways. But, um, but I haven't had the opportunity to read Birth of Nation or Power and Circumstance and Lies That Bind yet. So mm-hmm. I'm just speaking to the first book, which, by the way, be, it is a, what is about the first third of it. The main character is still a child, and then this, the last two thirds of it, he becomes an adult and begins to mm-hmm. grapple with adult issues. So, is it true that you are working on a rewrite of End of Empire that's designed for children that would be mostly about the first portion of its story? Yeah, Adventures of the Matic Sewer Rat is just about okay. ready to go to the publisher. Nice. Um, you know, I just need to format some things up and. And can send that off. Mm-hmm. At the market, we have a group of little boys who come to our table mm-hmm. and search diligently for anything that a boy might want to right. read. Right, and right. Um, they've already read through the the couple that you've got there from Karen Cushman, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Little Sparrow, they've read, yeah. and that's. You know, we really don't have it. So Melissa said, oh, take the first third of this and expand that out. So that's what I've done. I've, nice. I've talked more about his friends. It's a as, fascinating as a character. Bit. Yeah. And um, uh, a fair amount of detail about him playing football. Uh, Good. Yes. Which, yes, Jake really was excited about getting to talk about his football because they won the national championship, and oh. through the rest of these these books, yeah. he has to mention to everybody that his right, right, his right. team won the national championship. Now, is this national? Is this international football, as in soccer? Yes. Or is okay, okay, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it reminds me. There's a movie out right now. My husband saw it on the airplane recently. Came home and said, "Oh my gosh, we have to watch it." It's called Pele. Mm-hmm. And um, it's based upon the life of Pele, and it mm-hmm. starts off in a good, significant portion of this movie is all about the childhood, and yes. you know how these kids, you know where they got their amazing ability to, you know, play soccer or football in the way that they do. It's a great movie, and I mm-hmm. bet if you were to watch it, it would it would remind you a little bit of the scrappy type of stuff that these kids had to do in your book as well. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the types of stories that I was pulling from when I put this all together is mm-hmm. in, a, in a third world country, a kid from the slums doesn't have many opportunities. Mm-hmm. And 
for playing sports. They're certainly not going to be into tennis or golf or even swimming. Mm -hmm. Um, But everybody seems to have a soccer ball. Yeah. Of course. And uh, some form of... If not, you can make it. I think Pele, in the beginning, they would take old socks and stuff socks into socks into socks into socks into socks into socks until they had this big soft thing, which is why they could do so much work with it and they could, you know, manipulate it in so many ways and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. The other other sport that is common is some form of martial arts, some form of self-defense. Sure, 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 sure. Of course. So that's, that's, was his two sports. In, in the book series. Yes. So. And so, well, you know, for one second, for those of you who are just joining us, th- my name is March Twisdale. I am the producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I am interviewing my fellow Islander, Delinda McCann, today at the Sunrise Ridge Studio, Voice of Vashon. And I want to take a minute to thank some of the people on the island who do what is necessary to allow Voice of Ashon to exist, and that is to give us support. And so KVSH programming is supported by Snapdragon Bakery and Cafe. They have pastries in the morning, vegetarian lunches, wine and music at night, and of course there's the casual and friendly atmosphere in Snapdragon on Vashon at the highway near the south end of Vashon Town. And then also, of course, we have John L. Scott that provides a great deal of support as well for Voice of Ashon programming. They especially help out. Um, they are an underwriter, and they are, when you want to buy a house, you go to John L. Scott for the best people and the best results. So now, folks, we're going to dive back into the interview. I've only got about 15 more minutes or, um, yeah, about 15 more minutes left. And so I want to talk a little bit about Jeanette, which is another one of your standalone books. So Delinda, for those of you who are just joining us, has lived on the island for about 35 years and um, worked in the field of social psychology while also her family was a part of that work as they had how many foster children did your family help? Three. One girl was 18 when she kind of moved in mm-hmm. and started spending her holidays with us. And I was stood in for her mother at her wedding. Right. Um, one girl was 12 when she moved in. And the youngest one was five when she arrived. And did all three of these remain foster children or did any of them end up becoming adopted children? I, I didn't adopt okay. any of them. Uh the two were not older ones were not it wasn't appropriate to adopt right right and the younger one had enough issues mm-hmm. with the brain damage that uh, I didn't think that sounded like something I wanted to take the legal responsibility for that oh, that's a good point know, yeah children with brain damage we don't have the supports in our society mm-hmm. to take care of someone that has serious disabilities. Right. And so generally they end up in jail. Yeah. And it's really hard to come up with a positive outcome. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I didn't think I wanted to be legally responsible for something that was really the consequences of the way our society conducts business. Right. Do you have any countries um, in the world, I, it sounds like you were helping um Delinda created literally like the first website ever. Yes. 
about so fetal amazing. alcohol syndrome. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. other and people were selling things, but I, I had the first one on fetal alcohol syndrome. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so this website was pulled together, and you became the intermediary in a way between a lot of people in sounds like third world countries or distressed communities that wanted to work with you rather than try to go directly to some of the university professors and stuff. So you ended up being really in this beautiful melting pot middle ground where you got to see it at both ends. Countries that maybe you learned great things from or got good ideas from people who are maybe doing it better than other people in the world. Where are the successes? Okay. The big success, Sweden. The identification was first discovered in France with Dr. Lemoyne. He described fetal alcohol syndrome there. Uh, then the U.S. confirmed his description uh, at the University of Washington, actually, uh, Dr. Kenneth Jones and Dr. Dave Smith yeah. um, replicated Dr. Lemoyne's description. Um, and then when the researchers in Sweden picked up that exposure to alcohol during pregnancy was a problem. Right. They started a big prevention program. Right. They started looking at supports. And because they they do support their population, mm-hmm. um, they were able to identify people that have the disability. And they just kind of turned the picture around. They have wow. done the best for prevention. Mm-hmm. They have done the best for supports. Um English-speaking countries haven't done so well, uh, being primarily in denial. Mm. And, uh, you know, every now and then you get a... By English-speaking countries, I mean, so like in Denmark, for example, almost everyone speaks English, but it's obviously not their main language because Danish is their main language. So you're talking about just then America and the UK? Uh, Because everyone else considers English a second language. Yes, primarily. Yeah, India, the U.S., Canada. Mm. Um, Is English the first language in India? Um, yeah, officially. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. I didn't know that. Okay, go uh, ahead. Okay, South Africa. Uh, South Africa and um, Russia have done a good job uh, passing legislation right, to help prevent excessive alcoholism. Really? And, Russia? And Russia, South Africa has the best laws. Okay. Russia is second. But they have a huge problem. They through on the laws. They're doing okay with their legislation. They have the huge problem Mm -hmm. of a generational disruption in family structure. They have a huge problem with alcoholism. Right. You know, and um, I have to kind of respect. What they have done from where they've come. Right. Well, I mean, alcohol is a huge part of the culture yes. and Russia, obviously. And then you've got just endless economic struggle and difficulty. Yes. So you get all the depression and all the frustration and all yes. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So they... How about yeah. Ireland? Um, for a long time, we had a lot of denial there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did talk to a few people from Ireland when I was working internationally. Mm -hmm. Um, The researchers didn't pick up on it for a long time. Really? And part of that comes with the Catholic Church that has Mm -hmm. said, you know, with them drinking is okay. Um, Mm -hmm. 
you know, you have less alcoholism, less fetal alcohol syndrome Mm -hmm. among Muslims who don't openly drink. Right. So that means being openly drunk is going to get you in trouble too. Right. Yeah. 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 And Mormons don't openly drink. Right. And so, um, you know, as researchers are are looking at populations, they say, yeah, they, they are not identifying it in those cultures right. where if there's if there is any drinking it's hidden where it's... well and in a muslim culture not all but in many of the countries that actually base their government on islam they're also extremely patriarchal so the males have a better opportunity so to speak to break the rules and get away with it whereas i'm pretty sure Females that break the rules and get caught are dealt with more harshly. And fetal alcoholism doesn't come through the sperm, does it? Uh, technically, what we call fetal alcohol syndrome does not come from the sperm. Right. It's damaged during in utero, right? Confirmed um, research that says that the alcohol molecule can tag onto the sperm and it, it does cause some changes in DNA. Interesting. In the sperm. So, yes, uh, we've always said it takes a healthy man and a healthy woman to have a healthy baby. Right, 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 right. Yeah. But still, I would imagine when we're dealing with the traditional form of fetal alcoholism, you're just going to have a lot less women that probably have access yeah. to alcohol well, in we, those cultures. Yeah. Interesting. So that, that makes a difference. Um, and there's still a lot of countries where, you know, particularly in Asia, everything is perfect. Everything is always perfect. Nobody has birth defects. Mm-hmm. We don't have a problem. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's mm. just, you know, right. I'm hoping, we're hoping that maybe culturally they're they're saying, well, don't drink when pregnant, um, but they don't have a problem. Right, right, so, right. That's one of those little cultural things that we, yeah. we deal with. Okay, so let's look uh, here. Where'd the book go? Here it is. Uh-huh. Jeanette. Yes. So we're going to talk about this book, and then I'll be reminding everyone of how they can come find you to ask you amazing questions about all of your incredible work oh. here. Um, not to mention, what an inspiration. In, in six and a half years, you have managed to write, essentially, and publish six books. They're about really inspiring content, and the the rich characters and elaborate stories. So um, for those people who really want to write and they just are questioning their level of confidence, I I love having someone like you come in and prove it can be done. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we've we've built a good support for beginning authors here on the island now with our group on uh, Sunday evening. Right, right. Um, We're... You know, if you're looking for a writing critique group that's not going to be mean, nasty, or full of lots of drama, we have it. Yes. You know, it's in, you know, we will look at each individual author's writing. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes we'll discuss about things like the Oxford comma or um, what I call rabbit trails. How do you decide what to leave out and what to Mm -hmm. put in? You know, do we need to expand this? And that seems to be our biggest biggest problem we all have is when to expand. Right. And when 
you're adding superfluous. Yes. Yeah. When to go deeper, when not to go deeper. And of course, then there's also what I like to chat about is how to develop your platform, which is um, some people just cringe at the idea because they have this old school um, concept of platform as being like what politicians have, you know, as some, Mm -hmm. some fake, you know, image that you're putting out there and you're selling yourself. But the reality is that if you are writing, then you have a story to tell. You have a message to give. Well, in today's world, number one job of an author is no longer to write the great book. That's actually job number two. Job number one is to find readers, to to develop a way to bring your brilliant writing to the awareness of people who are, you know, just in a very busy world where there's lots of things competing for their attention. So I really like um, authentic platform development where it's really – not about a shallow layer of, you know, hi, everyone, buy my book. It's more about what can you do outside of the book that also expands the purpose that you had for writing the book. How do you reach out to new people? Mm-hmm. So tell us about Jeanette, a story of feminine courage. Jeanette started out. I like to tell people that Jeanette's problem was that she married a cheating cowboy. Mm, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, at yeah, I'm an organic grower. I'm one of the uh, partners in Calico Gardens, and I have the little flower stand down in Burton. Oh, that's nice. I didn't know that. Oh, he didn't know that. Oh, no. yeah. Down by Very cool. Flower stand is there on the corner in Burton. And awesome. I'm passionate about growing healthy food, healthy products. Right. You know, you're not going to get cancer from my flowers because they're – is it – there's Mother just nature. nothing toxic yeah. associated with them from seed through uh, harvest. I make my my plant food for my cut flowers mm-hmm. is simply vinegar and water. Mm. You know, both. Yeah, well, with the sugar in there. Yeah. I like the sugar. Yeah. But it's, um, I often even use organic sugar in their water. Oh, for you're brilliant. Food. Yes. So there's just. Nothing toxic there. And I make more with my one little acre than Mm -hmm. somebody who is growing corn. Right. In eastern Washington. Right. Right. It's amazing how That is what... Yeah. One of the things I learned with being a farmer is that as I started looking at what people do around the world, again with my interest in India and contact with some of the people there. I started watching what was going on there. Right. Where they learned that with a five or ten acre piece of property, right, well farmed, uh, they can grow more food than you can with agribusiness. Well, and especially with what's been going on in India with um, Monsanto yes. going in and, and, you know, all of the suicides as Basically, these people who had successfully achieved survival with a subsistence farming level and saving their seed were tricked into believing this storyline that they were going to do better economically if they would start buying seeds from Monsanto, blah, blah, blah. And it completely failed. And we're we're at almost 200,000 farmers have committed suicide, if not more at this point. It's sick. Yeah, yeah, because what do you do when when suddenly you go from 
generations of economic survival and now you're so far in debt your family's yep. destroyed it's yeah and that's that's part of the problem of what's going on in Jeanette right you know her it started out court inherited his farm from his parents mm-hmm. and they had run cattle and farmed pretty much organically just using their land as as it was designed to be used right um, and so he got the big bug that he could buy these genetically modified seeds, and he bought into the whole hook, line, and sinker of, of agribusiness, and it doesn't work. And I, I talked to people in Canada who bought into this. It doesn't work for them. It doesn't work in Washington State. It doesn't work in Oregon. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work in India. Um. So they have that economic stress. Right. You know, Jeanette works in a library. She does have a little plot where she grows some flowers and vegetables. And so they have a little roadside stand. And that's what they live on. Because mm-hmm. with with Quartz income, it either goes to buying equipment, repairing equipment, paying the taxes. They get a farm subsidy from the government, and that goes to buying more of the same expensive right. seed instead of being yield. So that's that's a lot of what I talk about in there. Yeah. And I, I love the picture And that's the what front. destroys, yeah, that's what destroys their marriage. Ah. Uh, well, I like in the front here, there's the picture of all cornrows, and it says, um, under this, it's a quote from Paul Hawken. Yes. And it says, all is connected. No one thing can change by itself. Yes. Which is especially during this, the political climate of this year is a brilliant thing for people to remember. It's why each and every one of us is important. Yeah. 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 And then the first, just to give everyone a little bit of a a taste here. So the very beginning, the first two lines of this book, when I think about how quickly my life changed, I still get disoriented. I got into the shower, a married woman, and I came out the rejected wife. Yeah, and it just yeah, it's very. I like how you start off immediately. It's just boom, boom, boom. Yeah, and you know, it's the story is basically how Jeanette put her life back together, and the repercussions of Court losing his wife, who had a paycheck, mm-hmm. uh, and in health coverage and everything that right. goes with uh, with a regular job, and so it. It's, you know, the impact all the way through and then the impact mm-hmm. on the community. And there's another mystery that runs through there. Mm-hmm. I love libraries. My mom used to work in a library. I love libraries, too. They're my oh, uh, yeah. Anywhere I go, if there's a bookstore or a library in the area, I will go spend time there and coffee shops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Jeanette works in a library. And, you know, growing up with somebody who worked in a library, um, I became aware of what they have there. And, mm-hmm. you know, libraries just squirrel away the most interesting information. Oh, I know. I know. And so in It's this, like treasure this, hunting to go to yeah. into a library yeah. or a bookstore. So in this particular story, yeah, they've squirreled away interesting information that can be used to 
convict somebody. So, uh, so uh, right, all right, yeah. So there's well, a mystery all around that. Too. I know, I know. And you know, the, the the true fact is that we could probably talk for another hour because there's so much we haven't delved into. But unfortunately, I'm out of time. I am running into loss of time with many of my authors lately. We're all just having so much fun. It's been fun being here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, Delinda McCann, thank you so much for stopping in and hanging out with me. Let's see. So everyone who's interested in checking out your books or chatting with you about the writer's life can drop by the farmer's market on Saturday here on Vashon Island. But what about the people who do not have a chance to come to market or people who are going to be listening to this show in other countries, where can they get access to your books? Do they look you up on Amazon or where would they find more information? I'm on Amazon. Right. And uh, because I publish through Lightning Sources, my printer. Cool. Um, Brilliant. I, I do have readers all over the world. Actually, I know you do. Liza Bind has sold better in Africa. Oh. Than it has in the U.S. Interesting. And, uh, yeah. But, um, Very and then cool. I have a uh, fair number of readers in India also. That, Very uh, cool. I'm not surprised. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Uh, so, yes, I'm available everywhere. Yeah. You know. All right. Yeah. So look her up. When you look up Delinda McCann, basically a bunch of options pop up there. Yeah. But the most recent one is Delinda L mccann.weebly.com and thank you so much for being on the show you're welcome uh, my name is march twisdale you've been listening to prose poetry and purpose where my guest authors share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world one reader and one listener at a time and now i will leave you with the inspirational and timely song we are the many created by musical activist makana Come here and gather round the stage The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty, the bureaucrats guffaw And until they are purged, we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Our nation was built upon the right Of every person to improve their plight The laws of this republic they rewrite And now a few own everything in sight They own it free of liability they own that they are not like you and me Their influence dictates legality 
And until they are stopped, we are not free. We'll occupy the streets, we'll occupy the courts, we'll occupy the offices, the The bidding of the many, not the few. You enforce your monopolies with guns while sacrificing our daughters and sons. But certain things belong to everyone. Your thievery has left the people none. So take heed of our notice to redress. We have little to lose, we must confess. Your empty words do leave us unimpressed. A growing number join us in protest. We occupy the streets. We occupy the courts, we occupy the offices of you, till you do. The bidding of the many, not the few. You can't divide us into sides. And from our gaze you cannot hide Denial serves to amplify And our allegiance you can't buy Our government is not for sale The banks do not deserve a bail we will not reward those who fail We will not move till we prevail We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few We'll occupy the streets, we'll occupy the courts, we'll occupy the offices of you, till you do. The bidding of the many, not the few. We are the many, you are the few.